call it a day. See you tomorrow. Okay. All right. Hey, do you want to come with us? You mean it? No, not you. Him. Him? Come with you? Out there. What is out there? Come and find out. Wait a second. Wait a second. Why him? I built this field. You wouldn't be here Great. if it weren't for me. Well, sick. you wouldn't be here I'm if it weren't. You have a family. I know, but I want to know what's out there. I want to see it. But you're not invited. Not invited? What do you mean, I'm not invited? That's my corn out there. You guys are guests in my corn. Right. No, wait. I have done everything I've been asked to do. I didn't understand it, but I've done it. And I haven't once asked what's in it for me. What are you saying, Ray? I'm saying, what's in it for me? Is that why you did this? For you? You know, Field of Dreams was uh, released about 20 years ago, 1989. But um, it, it somewhat, it was, it was interesting because it foretold something that was to become the, uh, what I would call the spirit of our age. And that is this idea that, you know, our culture today is really dominated by self-interest. And the idea that we would watch out for others or perhaps consider the common good is, is it's kind of an antiquated notion. Now, I have to tell you this. Uh, I apologize ahead of time. I've, I've been hearing from a few people. They said, you know, I've never seen that movie. I'll probably go watch it. I said, well, why? You know, it's been out a long time. Why you never see it? Well, I hate Kevin Costner. So if you're one of those people, I apologize for putting him up there on the screen, but uh, ask you to indulge me here for a little while, and, and we'll get on through it. Now, the general plot of the movie, the, the character played by that actor who shall remain nameless, is called Ray Kinsella. And Ray hears a voice. He gets a vision. And uh, I love the movie because I've actually used it to talk about what it means to pursue a vision and, and get a vision and follow it but he gets a vision to do something that is totally and completely random. Build a baseball field in the middle of an Iowa cornfield. Along the way, um, now, I should say this first, he, he knows he's supposed to do it. He's filled with this compulsion. But along the way, he encounters a lot of difficulty. He encounters hardship, ridicule, major ridicule, by the people there, alienation, because people figure they don't even want to hang around with his nutcase who's building a baseball field over in his corn, not to mention that he plowed under good crop, okay? But none of this stops him. None of it stops him. And I love this scene. It's why we showed it, because near the end of the movie, all the pieces of the story are finally coming together. These baseball players, and who knows how, but, you know, they come out and they've materialized out of nowhere. They're playing. More players come. It's this great scene, and he's a baseball fan, so he's in baseball heaven, basically. And so are the players getting to, you know, experience the game again. But in the midst of all of that, something is lurking in Ray's heart. And in the, in the signature scene here, it's, it's painfully, almost embarrassingly revealed, isn't it? Did you see the look on his face? I'm saying, what, what's in it for me? 
After all he's done, he's seen the thing come to fruition, what he believes is the vision, come to fruition, and yet lurking in his heart is that idea. Where's the payoff for me? I can't have done this just for what's, what's happened so far. Now, truth be told, and let's admit it, you may not feel like it, I'm just going to say it, this vein of self-centeredness exists in every single one of us. At some level, some of us it's closer to the surface, some lower, but it exists. We all have it. And like the character of Ray Kinsella, it is, depending on how far down, but it is below the surface. But it usually manifests itself in one of two ways. Now I'm going to talk specifically about those who are followers of Jesus. So there's going to be two ways that I see it manifesting itself. First, we get a sense that God wants to do something either in us and or through us. We get a sense of that. We get a sense of calling. But we're often stopped dead in our tracks because the question comes up. Okay, God, I, I think I know what you want me to do, but what's in it for me? Or perhaps we, don't, we aren't that blatant. You know, we, we, we get a sense of something and then we say, well, why don't you show me how this is going to happen? I want to be able to see the, you know, the path here and the outcome. And so we don't do anything because a lot of times we don't get that kind of clarity. On the other hand, others of us, like the character Ray Kinsella, we're willing to proceed in ambiguity. We're willing to step out into this uncertainty, to face things down, we, we work through it, we get to a place we want to be, and then we get to that point like Ray and we're saying, is this it? Is that all? Is this the payoff? Man, I went through a lot to get here. What's in it for me now? And this is a, it's one of my favorite weekends to teach. I've been on this weekend a bunch of times, and I'm a person who loves change, so this is really perfect for me because we just left Christmas behind. We're not quite to New Year. It's a kind of a season of flux, and I, I, I personally, I love uncertainty, so, you know, it's, it's a great time to be up here. And um, as we look forward, as I think about the New Year and we look forward, what we want to do today is to sort of put this question in our minds, what's in it for me? And when we look at and start thinking about the new year, which are all of us are going to do, being cognizant of the fact that, that the tendency to that approach exists in all of us. And that we just, first of all, first and foremost, just need to be aware that a lot of times we just, without even thinking about it, act out of self-interest. Now, if we're going to do that, it's kind of hard for me to just stand up here and tell you, well, Try not to think what's in it for me, and you know, good luck, see you later. It's a lot easier to have an example. So I thought, well, we could do negative examples, and you know, something happens to somebody, they, they act in their own self-interest. But I wanted a positive one, so I went to one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And those of you who've you know, heard me before, you'd figure, well, another one of those? But you know, I have a lot of favorite stories, and, and we're going to go to one. And it's a story about a man and his companions who acted in a, com in a way completely opposite to what's in it for me. And we're going to watch what happens to them in this account, this biblical account. Now, um, it's interesting that where we're going to be, we're going to be in, in Acts chapter 16. Uh, you can look it up in your Bibles, Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 16. It's also in your handouts there. 
Now, Acts 16 is in turn a pivotal chapter. Kind of interesting that at a pivotal time of year, we get to Acts chapter 16. Because the scene is this. Uh, we have a man named Paul who is a missionary uh, called by God and commissioned by the, in church, the, the church in Jerusalem to share the good news. The good news is another word for gospel about Jesus' death and resurrection and our salvation through that. So this is the good news that Paul is proclaiming. Now, in particular, Paul had a calling. So, like we talked about here, he had a, had a sense of calling that his mission was to preach this good news, take this message to people who were not Jewish. And the early church was primarily consisted of, of Jews in and around Jerusalem. So Paul's call was to take that outward and go with it. That's, that's what he felt particularly called to. So we find them in modern-day Turkey, what was called at the time Asia Minor. And they're trying to decide what to do next. Now Paul feels really called and compelled to go into Asia from there. And again, think of, try to think of your map if you're visually oriented Turkey. So he wants to go into Asia, but also there's, there's a sense that perhaps they need to go west into Europe, uh, actually beginning in Greece. And they're thinking and praying and considering and, you know, they, they make some moves. They go in this direction and really God doesn't allow it. They, you know, they make another move towards Asia and God doesn't allow it. And they're just wondering, okay, well, you gave me this call. You want us to go. I mean, why do you keep stopping us? So that night, the night that they, they're kind of frustrated, Paul gets a vision, a dream. And in this vision... A man from Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, appears to him and says, come over here and help us. So Paul and his companions decide, well, you know, a dream in the middle of the night, that's as good a, good a sign as any. Let's go. So across the ocean they go and they land in Greece. And we pick up the story in the, in the city of Philippi, which is where they have gone to, uh, to share their message. Verse 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul greatly annoyed turned and said to the spirit, and that's interesting, he didn't say to her, Paul knew that she was possessed of some spirit. He said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. So now, again, let's go back and think about this attitude. What's in it for me? This is kind of a nag of a girl over here. She's, you know, she's a bit of a pain. But you know what? We can just go down a couple of blocks and share our message. You know, let's just leave her alone. In fact, the next time we go out, let's not even pass by her street. Let's go out over here, okay? That's avoiding the confrontation, isn't it? And Paul could have just as easily done that. And if he was thinking about making the road easy or, you know, not wanting to be bothered, that's exactly the kind of thing someone would do. But he doesn't. He confronts the spirit that has uh, filled this girl, this this spirit of fortune-telling, being able to tell fortunes, and he cast this spirit out, this demon, if you will. And so, what happens? Did you think the masters would say, well, uh, gee, how great, you know, that you've helped out this young girl. That's really good. Now she's whole and healthy. She's, you know, no longer, you know, a slave to us. And No. 
what do they do? They're, they're acting out of self-interest, aren't they? You took away our source of profit. What's up with that? What are you guys doing? We're taking you before the authorities. So the masters were in it for themselves, weren't they? You see the contrast there. Paul could have easily avoided it. So it says in verse 20, And they brought them to the magistrates and said, And I love this. You know, I was talking about this earlier. These men, and you know, those of you who are married, you know, it's kind of like, your daughter, your son, and it's, it, there's the implication there just in the tone you can imagine they must have brought. These men, and it wasn't enough, it was kind of like those guys. He says, being Jews, so it was real accusatory in its tone, right? These men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Now the rods here we're talking about are a whip with metal balls on the end. So when those cross your, your flesh, particularly your back, they leave a swath. They basically cut off a layer of skin. So that's what they were beaten with when it says, you know, rods in this case. They could have also been sticks, but generally believe that they're, they're a whip with a metal ball. Um, and when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Okay, that's kind of redundant, isn't it? I mean, they're already beat up. So they're going to go into prison, but they're not just going into prison. They've been, they've been ordered to be kept securely. So what does he do? Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So now today, we think of a prison cells, and you say, oh yeah, you know, it went down some corridors and put them in the cell there. No. The inner prison in that day was not in the inside. It was down. And so the inner prison, really, you descend down who knows how many layers, many tens of feet below the level of the earth, and you'd be basically in a cave with a door on it. No light, damp, you know, just no provision for personal sanitation, nothing. And what they'd do is they'd take and slide the food through a little slot in the door, and that was it. And you were in the complete and total dark. So this is what we call the inner prison, okay? So it's not like, oh yeah, well they were beat up and then they got thrown. No, this is way worse than that. And it's important we understand that because what happens next only has meaning if we realize how dire their situation was, okay? Now we don't know if Paul and Silas had a chance to capitulate. What do you think? I know if I had had a chance, I'd have said to the authorities, you know what, sorry. You know, I, okay, we didn't mean to offend anybody. Uh, how about if you just let us go and we'll, you know, we'll go on to the next town. We'll get out of here. And, you know, we'll see you later and we'll appreciate it, you know. No. We don't know if they had that opportunity, but they certainly, by anything they did, they didn't give any indication that they were capitulating. In fact, they dug in. And for that, they received the punishment they did. Now, we get to the critical scene here that starts in, uh, that's in verse 25. And it says, But at midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Okay? Mental picture again. Go back to prison. What do you think would happen in a normal prison if at midnight two nutcases start yelling out and singing? Can you imagine the pandemonium? Whether you've been, you know, there's some I'm sure that have actually been there, 
But if you've seen the movies, you know, I can see toilet paper come flying out, junk all over the place, people screaming and yelling, what a mess. Why? Because who in the heck is going to be up making noise at midnight? Okay? And again, remember where they were. B literally blind down in this cave, if you will. Okay? I believe they were keeping vigil, which means they were literally praying and singing, waiting for, for some sign from God, some message, even just comfort from God in the midst of doing that. And the key here is it says the prisoners were listening to them. The Greek word that is used here for listening has an implication of pleasurable listening, like soft music or something very soothing. So think about that image in the context of a prison. So instead of there being pandemonium for these guys praying out and singing out, there was probably dead silence. And the prisoners are sitting in their cells, in their little caves, listening and being ministered to. And I tell you, that could only happen if Paul and Silas were not watching out for themselves, if they were totally submitted to just accepting what God was doing at the time and stepping forward in it. Verse 26, Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called out, called out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Now anybody who's lived, particularly in the Bay Area, but in California really, you know what an earthquake feels like. And this was a big earthquake. At the time, remember, or picture in your mind, not remember, but picture in your mind, the cells had doors. Now, they didn't have keys and all of this kind of stuff. It was too wet and old. But what they basically did is they had a door with door posts, and then they would take this big wood plank and, and slop it down on the door, and that was what kept people in the cells. There weren't locks and all this kind of thing. Then it had the slot, as we said, to feed. So this earthquake was so strong, it literally split the door posts open so that the bars fell to the floor. There was such a shake that chains that had been embedded in the wall, in the stonework, or in the rock, literally shook loose and came free. Now, what's in it for me? What do you think you'd be doing? See you later. I'm out of here. Hope I can find my way out without a light. Am I right? You've just been beat up. You may have been in your cell, you're asking God, you know, why, you know, I thought I did what you asked me to do. Why did you let this happen to me? Okay, all right, I'll pray, I'll sing, you know. <laughs> Earthquake. Thank you, Lord, I'm free. But they didn't do that, did they? Now, the side note here, the jailer, Realizing what happened, picks up his sword, he's going to kill himself. And that should give you some idea of the brutality of the time, because it was Roman law that if the jailer allowed anyone to escape, and there really was no provision for circumstances, so he wasn't going to go in and say, hey, you know what, uh, sorry, there was an earthquake. Tough luck, buddy. Okay, so preferring 
to take a sword to himself more swiftly than the punishment he was going to endure. He just decided to do it. And Paul knew that, and that's why Paul called out. Now, we are left to wonder, and it's not a point for today, but I've always wondered, um, did everybody stay? How come they stayed? Always been a point of curiosity for me. But the fact is, they were. They were there. So what happens? Verse 29. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. See, the jailer had just had his life saved. But in this moment of revelation, brought on in part by the suffering Paul and Silas had endured, his watching how they had endured it, and the act of what they were doing when they were in the cell, all of this in conjunction with the earthquake played a part. And in a moment, he realized he was spiritually dead. His life had just been saved, but what was that life worth living if he was spiritually dead? So what does he do? He rushes in in the moment and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So hey, who better to go to than the guys that probably brought this on? Lucky for me, they're right here at hand. And that's what he does. Going back to the movie now. It's an old movie, so I'm going to give it away. Sorry if you haven't seen it. Ray says, what's in it for me? The ball player says, I think you better stay here. Why? Because in the following scene, and, you know, there are many of us who have struggled in our relationships with our fathers. I think, in particular, I'm speaking today, though I acknowledge we all have, but for some of us men, it's been particularly acute. And I love this movie because, you know, we have the term chick flicks. This is a, a movie that I call a guy cry. And right after that scene, Ray realizes why he did it all. Hard for me even to talk about it without... Um, and there over on the side is his father as a young man who has come to play ball. And so Ray in his selfishness, asking what's in it for me, almost missed what really was in it for him. To be reconciled to his father. The jailer didn't miss it, did he? The jailer didn't miss that opportunity at reconciliation to his godly father. And Paul and Silas, because they didn't give in to what is obviously a natural tendency we all have, were instrumental in the jailer finding his salvation. 
See, because the miracle wasn't for them. And do you realize that if they had had the what's in it for me attitude, they would have taken the miracle as a sign that God was liberating them. It's a subtle thing, but it's a, it makes a huge difference, see? Because they didn't have that attitude, they stuck around. And the real work that God had in mind for the miracle came to pass. The salvation of that jailer. And you know the beautiful story to encourage us? We don't live in a vacuum. Because the jailer was saved, so was his whole family. Because that family came to know God, the little church that they had started in Philippi was strengthened. And because that little church, with a story, what a story, huh? The earthquake story, the earthquake account. Can you imagine what it must have been like in the city when that story got around? Because of the family and the church, the community was blessed. All because two men put their own self-interest aside and waited upon what God was going to do. See, God loves us. And God knows what's in it for us. God wants there to be something of value in it for us. But the only way we're going to get to that place is if we can first acknowledge our natural tendency towards self-centeredness and then secondly stop and submit ourselves and our lives on a daily basis to God and what God's about to do. Now we're going to continue the service here in a few minutes. We're going to receive our offering and the band is going to come back up. But um, before we do that, I, I want to pray. Lord, we're looking into the new year. Perhaps we started to make plans. Uh, maybe we don't. There's a lot of uncertainty out there, economically and otherwise. And it is a time when we wouldn't be faulted to look out for ourselves. But we know deep in our hearts, Lord, that you know what is best for us. That you're not just going to abandon us, that you love us. And so, Lord, I pray that today and in the upcoming weeks, we would be able to first just stop, listen to you, hear your voice, and then act in accordance. So, Lord, I just pray that you would bless everyone here. Help us not to feel condemned, but loved as we go forward into this new year. Amen.